location independence, or at least location flexibility, has been in my personal life plan for at least a decade. The more I've been able to build towards that, the more that has fed back into the quality of my work, the ability that I have to put effort into my work, my motivations for doing work. And I would not doubt that that same scenario applies to most, if not all, people in the workforce. To the degree that they are empowered to build their best lives, they will be able to do their best work. There's a revolution taking place right now. Talent and intelligence are equally distributed throughout the world, but opportunity is not. The talent economy, the idea that at the center of work is the talent, is the individual. Companies today face a global war for talent, and high-skilled talent is demanding flexibility around the way they work and the way they live. This podcast brings together thought leaders, staffing experts, and top freelancers to talk about the evolving nature of work and how companies can navigate these changes to remain competitive, drive innovation, and ensure success. Welcome to the Talent Economy Podcast. I'm your host, Paul Estes. My guest today is David Nuff, a principal at Nuff, a design agency that works with brands to translate their values into tangible visual assets. David is also a part of the TopTal Network, where he serves as a freelance design consultant and contributor to TopTal Speaker Academy. He designs for brands like Cisco, Nestle, and Google. He's also recently designed a VR platform for architects and interior designers, a next-gen TV streaming platform, and multiple early childhood education products. I'm David. I'm a designer. I work between digital products, branding, and public art. Well, David, thanks so much for joining me. I've got a lot of questions for you. You're a multifaceted person and extremely creative, so I'm excited about this conversation. But before we get into it, there's a global health crisis going on and you're a, a freelancer. And I just wanted to get your perspective from both a life and a work experience. How are you feeling? I think we all maybe aren't really sure how we're feeling right now. It's, it's variable from day to day. I mean, besides the headlines of we're all sort of stuck indoors. I think right now we're all kind of struggling or, or if not struggling, definitely adjusting to some, some fairly big changes. Personally, I'm just having to check in with myself every single day. I was, I was talking to a friend yesterday about the fact that you can kind of go three, four days and feeling really solid, feeling like things are, things are on the up. You're getting used to these changes in this new lifestyle. And then suddenly the fifth day is just, I'm not getting out of bed and you kind of have to reset. And so, yeah, it's been, it's been this time of, of having to be very patient with myself and to continually listen to what's happening internally and kind of adjust and calibrate. I would say I feel, generally speaking, quite lucky to be in a situation where I'm still fairly comfortable, I'm still working, I have access to food. Just by virtue of lifestyle, I was used to working from home or at least not working from an office. And so, yeah, things, things haven't been as far of an adjustment. I don't feel like I've had to reach as far to adjust to what's going on right now as others. The idea of checking in on yourself and, and those around you seems to be an important piece of advice. And, and one of the things I've enjoyed in doing these conversations during this time is it's a reminder for me to check in because I, I agree with you every three or four days, you know, things can be going great. And then you're like, oh, I, you know, and I work from home as you do. And, you know, I'm used to, you know, the benefits and the challenges of, of working from home. 
but it doesn't shield you from these unprecedented times. So, so thank you for sharing and vulnerably sharing your, your experience. I want to go and talk about your journey, you know, your journey to becoming a designer, both how you got to your perspective for moving around the world and also you were going to be a computer scientist. <laughs> so as I look at some of your art and some of the work you do, I, it just doesn't scream, I'm a computer scientist. Help Take me through that journey real quick. Yeah, I mean, probably one of, one of the first things I should say is that due to the way I was raised and the way my family is structured, my, my father worked for a multinational. And so every two, three years, we would pick up and, and move somewhere else. I grew up kind of with this innate understanding that the world was... It was a very big place and and a lot of doors could be open, which I'm very grateful for. I think, you know, the, the reality is the world has a lot of gatekeepers that are trying to keep doors closed, but I was not made aware of that. I was not made to believe that through the way I grew up. And and so I didn't really have a concept of, of picking a lane. My mother was a cook and had also been been a nurse at various points, and I believe, and was also a teacher before that. And so I'd kind of done a lot of things. And, and my dad had wanted to be um, a maths professor before becoming an engineer. And I have two older sisters who have terminal degrees in, in the sciences, and neither of them work in the sciences now. So I think the whole family, we, we sort of had this, this arts and science, you know, this idea that the two went together and were complementary to each other. So I grew up with with an interest in drawing, but as well with computers. And for a while, you know, was looking for ways to put art and technology together to put, you know, my love of drawing and my love of computers together. And I thought architecture would be the answer to that uh, for a while. And architecture just seemed like this impenetrable industry from the outside. But computer science was was something that made a lot more sense to me, seemed a lot more accessible. I'm just about the age where first generation growing up, sort of internet native. And I think a lot of people in my generation just took to computers more naturally than perhaps generations that had come before. So, you know, doing doing things online and, and all that, not to the degree that younger people now, uh, they just, they, it's weird. Uh, but I think we were sort of the first kind of bilingual analog digital generation. And so I, that was something I felt would give me a bit more of a, a head start in professional life. For me, I experienced that as well. I mean, I moved, you know, when I was obviously a real young child, we had TV, but we didn't have the internet and, and some of those things. And as I grew up, I just was fascinated by this thing called technology in a very broad sense. And how it was going to transform things and the problems that could be solved. And so it was just a, a curiosity that drove me to spending you know, 20 years in big technology. Now, I know earlier in your career, when you were a junior designer, you worked on a wireless tech for a bike share company, and it was recognized in Time Magazine as one of the inventions of the year in 2008. What was that like to get that sort of validation on a project that you worked for so early in your career? I feel like I should probably downplay my contribution to that particular accolade in the sense that I was a junior, I was, I, was, I was contributing, but at a very low level, a very tactical level. The project was going to be a success regardless. I was kind of helping 
a senior designer. I was, I was doing sort of lower level tasks at the time. But one thing it, it did was I hadn't had a design education. I was coming from, as you'd mentioned, I, w- I went to school for computer science, but I actually graduated with a modern languages degree. So I was coming out of school a linguist a linguist who liked computers and drawing. And <laughs> it's, a very, it's a very diverse background. Yeah, exactly. And it's not the most conventional hire if you're a technology company. I think they took a chance on me because they saw that I might be able to communicate really well with the developers and the engineers with that computer science background and still be able to bring a level of, of visual creativity and visual thinking. But not a lot of employers would have taken that risk. And so what the the Time Magazine thing did was essentially give me a leg to stand on in the future. Um, at that point, I had no no resume, no portfolio really beyond this one job. But the fact that it was something visible and and beyond, I think, this list of of inventions, which yeah, that's that's cool. But it was also a thing that was visible in the city. It was a thing that people were using, and I think that was almost almost more important that I could walk into a job interview, have the person I was sat opposite say, "Oh, you worked on those bikes outside." And it was a bit of sort of social proof of higher ability. And so, yeah, for those first two, three years, I think I, I dined off the fact that I'd worked on something that was visible. You, you mentioned something, I think, that is very interesting to me. And I've, I've experienced in my career, because I've had lots of different jobs, whether it's business development or product marketing, and that diversity of experience, employers at big companies have a hard time getting their head around. I think they... They say, hey, we want diverse experiences. We believe that diverse teams are better. And I mean from an experiential level and, mm-hmm. a, and an education background level. But when it comes down to it, there's very few leaders and hiring managers that are willing to take that bet on somebody who has that diverse experience. As you've moved to on-demand work, how have you seen clients interact with you given your background or be open to the idea that diversity is a, is a part of that? Or do they look at you as a, hey, here's a designer? I think that especially at larger companies or companies with a much more established offering or product, you know, something that's, that's pretty defined, they have a way of doing or making the thing that they sell. It's a lot easier to say we're, we're looking for specialists, we're looking for people to slot into this machine and do a very specialized job. And we have a very, you know, we've got a secret source. We've got a way of doing things that is very specific to us. Oftentimes, doing that, though, causes you to miss out on opportunities to find new ways of working or, or optimizations or improvement. And definitely, at a more junior level, I found it was, it was very difficult for me to get opportunities as, as someone with that diverse experience and background compared to, you know, let's say, you see this in, in sort of advertising all the time. Let's say you're a car company looking for a designer. You're going to hire the person who's done work for other car companies. Despite the fact that any good designer would be able to learn about that industry, there might be some specialized knowledge, but that's something that they can, they can ramp up. Do you really think it's, you, you said the word secret sauce. Do you, do you think it's secret sauce or do you think it's, hey, there is no upside of me as a manager or leader of disrupting the boat? Like it's it's less risky if I just hire somebody who has that background and if it doesn't work out, that's fine. But look, they went to a good school and they have this traditional background versus taking a risk. Or is it like a deliberate secret sauce? Yeah, I, I think up to the point that someone's 
hired, it is probably risk mitigation. It is probably, we're going to reduce our chances of this going sour by bringing in someone with all the credentials on paper. If there is a secret source, it's going to come from on-the-job training. It's going to come from work experience inside of a, an organization. And I do think some people genuinely have secret source, like some some companies. But that's something that is trained and something that is cultural. It's It's kind of passed on within the company. And so bringing someone in from the outside shouldn't be based on that. And I had really good bosses who always said, you know, we can train pretty much any skill. We're more interested in, in the character of the, the person. We're more interested in their ambition and their desire and their soft skills and their ability to learn and work with others. Because once we get you into our company, we can teach you how to use the tools. We can teach you how to apply our particular sensibilities to the work. So I definitely think there's an element of not wanting to stick their heads, their necks out too far in the minds of people who make those sorts of decisions to, I guess, I don't know, stack the deck by hiring a certain type of person who's maybe on paper more, more likely to be successful. As a freelancer, especially in the TopTel network, how are you seeing clients start to embrace this idea of reaching out to a David Nuff who is a freelancer and is not willing to move to their location and do work on site? I think there is a lot more openness to it now, um, thanks to, I think, a lot of really great examples that have publicly kind of written or spoke spoken about the idea of, of working remotely, working in a distributed team and the benefits, but also how to set things up for success. Um, obviously, tooling has come a long way. The internet is, is, is a massive help and the fact that more people have access to high-speed internet. All of these things are helping. But I definitely, from my perspective, you know, I see a lot of San Francisco-based or Silicon Valley, like West Coast-based organizations, I think beginning to understand that it's kind of nuts out there, cost of living, but also just talent, like competition for talent. The environment is, is it's very particular and some people will, will thrive in that environment. But I, for example, I can't really imagine myself being based in the Valley. So I've seen a lot of companies from there who are now open, open to working with, with talent from, from other places, I understand that that increases their, their chances of, of success, increases their chances of working with really fantastic and unique individuals currently through TopTel working on a project with an organization based. They have an office in, in Silicon Valley and they have an office in Europe and an office in Asia. So I guess they're already used to, to working across time zones, but then they've engaged a bunch of people from the network across Canada and the UK, Portugal, I think Eastern Europe. I think there is one person on the West Coast as well and so, you know, their team of freelancers or their team of outside resources is also distributed. Them having an internal culture of virtual communication, Zoom calls, whatever it is, has really helped us feel part of the team and us be able to connect with each other as well as with our clients. So I, I've worked a lot of multinational corporations and I've had teams, one time I can remember I had a team in Singapore. And so I was, I was used to working virtually. It was all on conference calls. And this was before Slack and Zoom and, and, and some of these tools. So I, I can only imagine how more productive we could have been with, with some of these asynchronous tools and, and video chat. If you were talking to a, let's say you were on a panel 
and, and you're a speaker, you do a lot of speaking, and you had a room full of executives and HR leadership, and you had a message to give to them that says, hey, look, I've, I've chosen this path to be a freelancer and to make my services available in a virtual sense. What sort of things would you tell them that are valuable to the way they think of their business? And especially at this time where everyone in the world almost is being trained at the same time on how to work in a distributed fashion. The first thing I would say is from my experience, when you are able to set your life up in a way that's that's going to allow you to be healthy and happy and live successfully, success being just a, a life well lived, that's going to spill over into your work. So personally, I've spent my entire professional career building towards a certain kind of lifestyle. I have family all over the world. I have a personal desire to to see a lot of the world. And so location independence, or at least location flexibility has been in my personal life plan for at least a decade. The more I've been able to build towards that, the more that has fed back into the quality of my work, the ability that I have to put effort into my work, my motivations for doing work. And I would not doubt that that same scenario applies to most, if not all, people in the workforce. To the degree that they are empowered to build their best lives, they will be able to do their best work. That doesn't mean every single human being wants to be on the beach with a laptop, which is really not hygienic or comfortable. <laughs> I've always struggled with that as the canonical image for... That's the remote, remote worker. Work. Somehow we're on <laughs> right. the beach, our feet are up. And no, like I don't... This is a... I have a MacBook Pro that cost me two months rent. I don't want to put it anywhere near water. Like that's not a thing. Wait, but I also, I also don't want to sit on a beach and, and work. I think part of like, yeah, for me, when, like, when I go to the beach, I'm on the beach. Right. So I, I think it's powerful. What you said is, is a life well lived or this definition of success. And I, I just think about the, the growth of wellness products, right. Mm-hmm. Or just the, that industry that's being born to promote wellness and HR and, and just large organizations trying to figure out how to, help their people. And the number one thing at the top of every list that talent asks for is just flexibility. And so I think that that advice is something that is important for people to pause a minute and think. And if you're, if your true desire is to get the best work and, and also engage the best talent, then flexibility may be a simple unlock that can fix a lot of the ills that, that are in structured and hierarchical environments. If you had to give advice, let's say a company is like, hey, I want to try this on-demand thing. What would you tell those team members that you'd be working with that could help shortcut and help them be successful in their first couple of engagements? I think the relationships are are key. You're coming in, maybe disadvantage is the wrong word, but you're coming in having to build relationships from scratch without the scaffolding of being sort of like on the team officially, you know, you're not, you're not a necessarily a, um, a staff hire. Sometimes you, you might be coming in in a full-time capacity, but you're not sort of like doing an orientation week where you go for lunch with everyone. And, and I find that those situations, it's double important. It's doubly important. I don't know which word is correct there, <laughs> but it's twice as important 
to establish good relationships, working relationships, and if you can, interpersonal relationships as early as possible. There's the, the famous line about given an hour to chop down a tree, I would spend the first 15 minutes sharpening the axe to spend as much time laying the groundwork, asking the right questions. Um, you know, most strategic relationships now begin with some kind of discovery session, and that's, that's for good reason. We don't want to get busy and get into the weeds and start doing the work before we really know what the work is and what the parameters for success are and all that kind of stuff. So I would say to anyone that begins that kind of engagement to invest early on in both the relationships and an understanding of what the the mission is and an alignment with everyone on what that mission is. The idea that working with teams and not understanding the outcome first and just starting to get busy. I mean, I've, I've worked in a lot of environments where you felt like you were rewarded just for being busy. Like, here's my work and well, what was the outcome? Well, that's, let's not talk about that. Let me show you my 100-page deck or, you know, my big, long piece of paper that I wrote. And it wasn't really focused on the outcome. And in your experience, how important is understanding the goal and the outcome versus maybe a traditional environment in an office where it may be the process that is focused on? Yeah, there's this sort of hit the ground running culture. We talk often about ramping up. These, all of these words that, that suggest that you need to get someone up to speed, that velocity is, is the thing, right? Velocity is, is, is what we're aiming for here. And, and I do think it's good to have a decent working cadence, which is slightly different to speed, right? Cadence is more about we need to have some regularity in the way work goes. But I think that can come a little bit after. I, I, would, I would say you first want to have alignment. You first want to have understanding. I completely get the idea of coming in and wanting to look busy immediately, that, that's super important in the sort of traditional workplace structure where people get promoted and people get passed up for promotions and everyone's trying to look good so that someone in a position to do something for them politically can help. The sooner we, we do away with that, the, the sooner we are able to focus on the quality of the work and focus on the success of the work. And one of the advantages of, of being not politically invested in an organization is that that usually doesn't matter to me. Not that I can be a complete jerk and, and just say anything to anyone. I still have to be diplomatic and tactful, but I'm not invested advancing my status at the company. I'm, I'm more invested in doing really good work. That's the thing that's actually going to get me hired again. And so at that point, I come in looking to understand what really good work is. That's way more important than looking busy. And if really good work happens to be really fast work because something important is coming along, then I will work as fast as I possibly can. But oftentimes it's the slower, more considered work that will have the long-term benefits. The other thing that I want to get your point of view on is that when you do those discovery sessions or that early work, you're also building a foundation of trust. And I found in many organizations that the underlying psychological safety or trust doesn't exist. And, and so what fills that vacuum, to your point, is politics, right? And, and looking busy and, and, you know, making sure that the, the activity you're doing is seen in a good light so that you can, you know, like either get that promotion or whatever that thing is that you're trying to do, not necessarily the purity of the outcome and the work. How do you build trust when you're virtual? 
this is a roundabout answer, but there are kind of two distinct ways of solving a problem. There, there might be more than two, but there are at least two. There is a way of solving a problem that has to do with, I've seen this before. I have previous experience. I know the answer to this question. And then there's a way that has to do more with, well, maybe the answer is in the question. So let's unpack the question. And a lot of times you come in as, as a consultant or an outside person, and you've seen a lot of these problems before in, in other companies where you've seen a lot of these situations. Maybe someone is, you know, from a design perspective, someone is starting to build out a mobile app and they're trying to figure out onboarding and you've onboarded, you know, you've built a bunch of flows for other products. So you are in a position to just say, I, I have experience of this. Here's the answer. I find if you can actually flip that into the other way of problem solving. So you may already know the answer anyway, but um, if you remember kind of in primary school, you know, maths problems, someone might say, John is traveling on a train from this city to that city and they're this far apart and the train is moving at this speed and he left at six in the morning. I never liked those questions. <laughs> what time does John get to where he's going? But like all the pieces to solve right. the, the, the problem are actually in the question. And a lot of the time that's true with, at least with my work, everything that you need to figure out the solution is actually in, well, who's, who's our user base? What did early research suggest? What are the competitors doing? What is the actual problem that we're trying to solve. And by just walking back through those things and unpacking them with the team, they start to, you know, kind of, they suggest the answers that you had in your head. And it looks like they're coming up with the answers. Well, it doesn't look like it. They are coming up with the answers, but they're coming up with the answers that you could have just fed to them and just said, hey, I'm taking over. This is what we're doing. And so that's one of one of my personal methods of working with a new team is to see if we can find a solution together rather than me dictating it. And that first early win of you were able to guide us towards the solution and sort of facilitate us coming up with this will do a couple of things. It will it will still have that weird political effect of advancing your status, but it will also create trust in the process, which is more important. And it will kind of say, if we just do the work, then we'll get to the, the answer. And this doesn't depend on, on my ego or your ego. It doesn't depend on any special talent. It's just a case of, of working through these things. I think it also unlocks the power of the diversity that you as a freelancer, working with a bunch of different companies and solving different problems in different domains brings to that organization. So in some ways you're helping reskill or upskill that organization just because you have a diversity of projects that you've worked on where they may not have had that diversity. Yeah, absolutely. I think every time I work with an early stage business, well, with a first time entrepreneur, first time startup, there's this sense of we've never done this before. You may never have done what we're trying to do, but you've at least helped someone else launch their business. So there's this kind of impromptu business coaching relationship that that can emerge. And I by no means am, am claiming to know more than anyone in their area of subject matter expertise. And it's more about, oh, I've seen lots of companies start. I've seen the beginning of a lot of things. And I know that there are a few things that are probably coming down the line. There's going to be a lot of anxiety and a lot of long nights and there'll be a few major wins and kind of walk to that walk. And in terms of being able to just 
reassure and maybe occasionally push back on certain things. I find that that's a very useful position just as someone who has seen certain things more than once. That's good. It's good insights. And I think you said something when you talk about an early stage founder, they're open to that feedback and advice because they are focused on the outcome. They want their particular view of solving a problem to help as many people as possible. And I think more and more organizations are really trying to disrupt themselves or figure that out. But you said something that I think is brilliant is they're not sure what question they're trying to answer. And, and once you can get to a solid question, then unpacking it may be, may be the secret. Let's look out to 2021 or 2022. Given all that's going on globally, what do you think has changed? What is the new normal in the way work gets done? I'm one of the people that doesn't think we are currently on the precipice of a massive paradigm shift. I do think that things will evolve, particularly with the amount of, and while other brands are available, I will say Zoom, the amount of Zoom calls everyone's doing, particularly with the amount of teleconferencing and sort of virtual communication that's going on right now. I think the pandemic, which, which is obviously a major factor in everyone's life, has already taught us how much more connected the entire world is than we sometimes care to think. But I think that virtual communication is the sort of reverse side of that coin. Not only are we connected in this way that if suddenly pandemic starts to spread, then all of our fortunes, health and, and economies are tied together, but also we actually have the tools to strengthen those bonds and those connections. I think with an increased eye on the climate, it may be that we are able to reach each other virtually a lot more, even if we are not physically, geographically as mobile. That remains to be seen. Who knows what travel technology may be around the corner. You don't have insight into teleportation or anything, do you? Not yet. I'm, <laughs> I'm working on it. Well, hey, David, thank you so much for, for taking time with me today. If there's someone listening that wants to reach out and learn more about your art or the work that you're doing, what is the best way to get in touch with you? I theoretically have a website, uh, nuff.design. It doesn't get updated ever. I have an email address, which is info at designbynuff.com. And I am on the various social media, Twitter, LinkedIn, Instagram as designbynuff. And we'll, of course, have all that information in the show notes. David, thank you so much. I really enjoyed this conversation and, and learned a ton from you. Thanks, Paul. It's been a pleasure. I'm your host, Paul Estes. Thank you for listening to the Talent Economy Podcast. Learn more about the future of work and the transformation of the staffing industry from those leading the conversation at staffing.com, where you can hear from experts, sign up for our weekly newsletter, and get access to the best industry research on the future of staffing. If you've enjoyed the conversation, we'd appreciate you rating us on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts, or just tell a friend about the show. Be sure to tune in next week for another episode of The Talent Economy. 